Support for this podcast and the following message comes from KUST Campus Radio, a student-operated, non-commercial radio station. KUST provides students and faculty of St. Thomas a platform dedicated to creative storytelling, diverse viewpoints, and exploring a vast array of audio content. Tune in at any time to KUST at Mixler.com slash KUST hyphen radio. The opinions presented in this podcast are just that, opinions. TommyMedia.com is not a replacement for expert legal advice. The topics discussed may be triggering for some listeners. Discretion is advised. Welcome to the News Brief, Inside the Chauvin Trial, a podcast focusing on updates in the trial of ex-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. We're your hosts, Kayla Mayer and Maddie Peters. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. As to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. To count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. Derek Chauvin was found guilty for second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter in the death of George Floyd. Closing statements took place on Monday, April 20th, with each side taking a couple hours to speak. After the jury deliberated for just under 10 hours, the verdict came in the late afternoon Tuesday, April 21st. We sat down over Zoom with Kara Levin's Emily Havick. A couple really important things that that probably helped the state in getting this conviction. Um, the judge, you know, the jury instructions are very important because that's what they that's what the jurors follow to reach their verdict. So the, inter- the explanation of the law, um, how they evaluate testimony, all this stuff is in there. And it's 14 pages long, the final instructions. Um, before the judge lands on these final instructions, both sides present what they want the instructions to be. So they just write them up and they kind of use it. I mean, they use a template, like a lot of it's the same, but there are a few key differences. So a couple of wins for the prosecution in these instructions. Um, One of them is in the way that they talked about use of force. So you've probably heard about like the hindsight 2020 idea in these trials of police officers where juries are often told you can't use 2020 hindsight to judge this officer's actions. And essentially, I mean, that's true. That's in the, that's in the national standard on how we, judge police officers use of force, but that instruction specifically doesn't have to be in there. Um, And the judge left that out. So what it says is that they have to evaluate the police officer's actions, um, judging him based on what a reasonable officer on the scene would do in that moment with the facts that Chauvin had. So that's basically the same thing, but I think that 2020 hindsight thing jurors Uh, might tend to get hung up on it. It makes it sort of feel like, oh, I can't really judge this person's actions. I'm not there. And so everybody saw that as really a win for the state. And then the other thing that was a big deal is we talked last time about this second degree murder charge, which is the heaviest charge and he was convicted of. Um, That charge includes in the language, it's, it's, unintentional murder while committing a felony. And the felony is third degree assault. 
And there has to be intention in that third degree assault. And that can be like one of the hardest things to prove, I think. Um, but in the instructions, the judge clarified that um, they had to prove that Chauvin intentionally committed the act that caused great, bar great bodily harm or substantial bodily harm, but they did not have to prove that he intended to cause the harm, only that he intended the act and the act caused the harm. So if you think about that in this situation, that's a huge difference. And the defense wanted it to be uh, a little bit more of a specific definition of intent that he intended to cause the harm, I believe. So that was a big, that was a big win for the state. Um, I think those were the two most significant things we saw in the instructions that really probably influenced the way the jurors took apart this case. Mm -hmm. Going off kind of, you talked a little bit about like the important things that the jurors had to deliberate on as they're looking at each charge. Um, and you mentioned like the intent, um, use of force, and I also think that a big thing, I guess this kind of ties into both of those, is that um, the cause of death was significant as well. And also considering the burden of proof um, that was on the prosecution. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more on like what exactly the jurors had to deliberate on for each charge. Yeah, for sure. So the cause of death is a big one. And, and this is another place where the instructions really, um, the definition of cause in the law really helped the state because we heard Eric Nelson talk a lot about possible contributing factors. Um, there were the drugs in Floyd's system, there were his uh, underlying heart conditions. And that was a huge point of the defense's strategy. One thing that the prosecutors said in their closing arguments was, look, we don't actually have to prove that those causes weren't there as contributing causes. All we have to prove is that Chauvin's actions were a substantial cause. A substantial causal factor is, um, is, is the language in the instructions. So that's a big difference. I mean, to, for the jurors to have to decide nothing else could have possibly contributed that might've been tougher for them than to decide that, yeah, you know what, like it sure seems like this guy was doing fine until he was restrained in this way by the officers. So uh, they, I think that that was a big thing that they had to discuss. You know, the deliberations were pretty short and most of the attorneys that I heard from saw that and indicated that they thought the jurors were probably lined up pretty well with the state because if they're going to acquit somebody, it's probably going to take more time to really examine that and be able to say, no, you didn't prove your case. But if they think the state proved its case pretty effectively, it can be a little faster. The other thing is that it probably meant they were all pretty close to agreement um, because it, you would think they deliberated less than 10 hours. We found out when we saw the final verdict documents filed. So, I mean, you would think that if there was one person in there who was really on a different page, it would take longer than that. So, I mean, I think for a big complicated trial like this to wrap up that quickly, um, these people were 
were probably in agreement and they were pretty sure <laughs> about their verdict or you would think it would take longer than that. A crowd had formed outside of the Hennepin County Courthouse in Minneapolis in anticipation of the trial's outcome. Following the verdict, celebrations erupted. If the verdict had been different, I think everybody knew there was a potential for a lot of unrest. And um, everyone's been kind of poised and braced for that for a long time. So it was really interesting to watch sort of like the atmosphere in the city change when that verdict came down. And all these people who are tired, they're frustrated, they uh, have been denied justice so many times over and over and over. And you just see these people out there just weeping, <laughs> breaking down when they hear this verdict that they, you know, I think they hoped for, but they never thought they'd see. It was incredibly powerful to watch that. And I think um, it was really interesting to see the whole mood shift in the, in the Metro and not that people aren't still calling for, for justice, calling for systemic changes in the system. Um, I think though that the mood shifted kind of to one of celebration for most people. And so you've kind of got all this law enforcement at the ready. And I mean, at the peak, I think they had planned to have 2000 national guard soldiers mobilized. So they sort of had all, all this ready and they've used some of these, some of these um, troops, if you will, but they certainly didn't have to mobilize to the point that they had planned at least yet. So interesting. I mean, it's a little bit of a case of being probably better to be in their minds, I would think better to be overprepared. Yeah. And I echo what you said about seeing the crowd's reaction and just like the Twin Cities reaction, I'd say just powerful um, to just see like the pure relief on people's faces almost. And um because there's always that doubt, I think, in people's minds, like, will that, will the jury convict him? Um, and I could see for, especially like Floyd's family and other like Black Lives Matter activists that, you know, they've been working for this for almost a year now. And to finally see that the protests and stuff worked, at least for, and brought justice for one person. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is obviously the protests, um, protests didn't, or we hope that they didn't impact the jury, but it, it's true. I think what you said is very true that, that what we saw as a direct result of, of people mobilizing and calling for justice, because if you look at, I mean, a, the charges that were filed in this case were, were certainly heavier than sometimes what charges are filed against officers. So um, the public sort of demanded uh, a certain accountability for Derek Chauvin. And I mean, the, the prosecution that was mounted in this case, you had Attorney General Keith Ellison sitting in that courtroom every day for um, weeks. He is a very busy guy. Um, they, the public, what the public did, I think, is they forced the very top people in this state to make this trial their priority. 
And so, I mean, you had a team of prosecutors, some of the top lawyers in the country prosecuting this case. They worked for a year on this. So I, would we have seen that um, if there hadn't been so much public pressure? I think that's a really good question. I don't, I don't know that we would have. Probably would have seen a prosecution, but um, it was a very, very strong prosecution. So it's really, really pretty powerful to see that. The verdict yielded celebration and relief for those wanting to see police reform, but many also recognize that the work is not yet done. It's been really interesting to hear the reactions from, you know, from family, from activists. And what I'm hearing over and over is let's celebrate. Yes, um, they're happy about the conviction, but there's so much more work to do. And, you know, one conviction of one officer doesn't change the broader problems in the system. A lot of people now are really trying to focus attention on the George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act, which is a, a federal act that could bring some, some reforms to policing. This bill would hold law enforcement accountable and help build trust between law enforcement and our communities. This bill is part of George Floyd's legacy. And what we learned today was that the Department of Justice is going to be opening a sweeping investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department. So that will be really interesting to watch. One thing I heard from local community leaders today is they said, you know, we welcome you, please come. <laughs> but also they said, we want you to reopen other police deaths um, of other community members who have been killed in police custody or by police. So that was very interesting to hear. And what they're trying to say is this, this wasn't just George Floyd. We want you to look at the policing practices and we want you to kind of retroactively look at some of these other cases that we feel didn't get enough attention. If you watch the families supporting families against police violence group is very active and you'll see pretty high, high profile family members in that group that are well known, you know, Jamar Clark's sister will speak, um, Philando Castile's mother. What's really interesting is these people who have had a loved one killed by police, you know, <laughs> like in this club that nobody wants to be in. And there are a lot of people in that group though, that will speak and say, nobody knows the name of my family member because nobody took video. But I think it's, it's, it's really interesting to hear those voices of those family members who did not get global attention on the death of their loved one. And, and they're saying, now, can we talk about, you know, my person? Um, now that we're all listening, let's talk about the other people that, that didn't have a video, didn't have a lot of evidence, maybe never saw uh, what they would want to see for justice. So I hope that uh, those people begin to get a little more public attention as well. Yeah, it's hopeful with the Department of Justice investigation, too. That I feel like that's pretty big. It is big. You know, it's happened. It's happened in several other cities. And I, I think we're doing some stories today on this, on, on what actually comes out of these investigations. So check out CARE 11 tonight. Um, I, I didn't do the story, so I don't I don't know the answer to that, the data on on what happens. Um, but, you know, there was already a state human rights investigation going on of the Minneapolis Police Department, and that's ongoing. So there's already a state level probe going on. Now we've got the federal one. Um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's certainly, they're gonna have people in there accessing all of these records uh, 
and basically everything there is to know about the Minneapolis Police Department. So it's certainly a big deal. Um, I guess we'll see what what tangible things come out of it or what what changes come out of it. Um, I know Minneapolis police under Chief Arredondo have already been enacting several reforms. So there's all kinds of dialogue going on in the Twin Cities about is it, you know, is it enough? What are what needs to be done? Are is it just lip service? But certainly Arredondo has um, been been making a lot of moves to try to show people that he's serious. The efforts for police reform continue in Minneapolis in the wake of Dante Wright's death after he was fatally shot by former police officer Kim Potter. Potter has been charged with second-degree manslaughter and makes her next court appearance in person on May 17th. But what's next for Derek Chauvin? In the next few weeks, Judge Peter Cahill will consider any aggravating charges that could influence the sentencing issued to Chauvin. Those convicted have the right for the jury to sort through aggravating charges, but Chauvin waived that right to Cahill's discretion. After the verdict, Judge Cahill said sentencing would come in eight weeks' time. More concrete dates will be disclosed later. Thank you for listening. Check TommyMedia.com for more on the trial. With Maddie Peters, I'm Kayla Mayer for The News Brief, Inside the Chauvin Trial.